Hello, everyone, and welcome to season three of the Gills Talk podcast. If you have been a listener since day one, thank you so much for listening. If you're newer, still, thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast. We are so excited to kick off a new season for the summer, and especially kicking off this season with a Gills Club co-founder, which is Dr. Heather Marshall. I'm just going to hop right into the interview today so you can learn all about how Heather became a co-founder of the Gills Club, her research, and how she changed her fear of sharks into fascination and became a shark scientist. So thank you again for listening. Remember to rate, subscribe, and review, and enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Gills Talk interview. Today, we have one of our co-founders of the Gills Club, which her name is Dr. Heather Marshall. So welcome. You are kicking off season three here of the podcast, which is so hard to believe, but I'm happy we are finally able to have you on. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. And I can't believe Gills Talk is into season three already. That's incredible. But a hearty congratulations to you and the team for starting and managing the podcast. It's been really fun to listen to over the last couple of seasons. Oh, well, thank you so much for that. Um, so I guess just to kick it off, I mean, we can get into your science and your background later on, but I, mm-hmm. I think the viewers want to know, like, how did you become a co-founder? How did you link up with Marianne and Julie and Cynthia to be able to form the Gills Club? Well, it's amazing. This was back in uh, 2013 that we first started kind of getting the plan together for Gills Club. And I met uh, Cynthia first at some um, several research related public events where, you know, we were kind of giving some talks and, and, and meeting people who had check related questions, you know, AWSC does them all the time. And so Cynthia and I got to know each other through those events and what we started seeing was that there were these uh, young girls who were coming to the events and they were wearing t-shirts with big sharks on them and they were so excited about sharks and um, had tons of questions and just this real genuine, you know, excitement and passion. And so it was great to talk to them. Some of the young girls, you couldn't even get a word in edgewise that you would be trying to talk to them about tags and they'd be like, well, here's the PSAT, here's the spot tag. And they already had done their research. And so it was just really fun. But what we also started hearing was this, you know, um, unfortunate trend of, you know, their parents sharing with us that the girls have been told by peers at school that sharks were just for boys. And um, I'll never forget Uh, I was giving a talk at one of these events and a young girl raised her hand and asked me if it was true, if it's bad luck for girls to be on boats. And so we were just kind of seeing this kind of, you know, this passion, but also this insecurity that the girls were Mm -hmm. probably exposed to in terms of, could this be something that they would, they could do in the future? And so Cynthia one day just said, are you interested in starting a a club for girls who are interested in shark research? And, you know, of course I was, I said yes immediately. And um, it was such a great idea. And I believe at that time she was already speaking with Marianne who contacted her and then also uh, Julie as well. So uh, it all kind of came together uh, through Cynthia 
And we started having these, these meetings, planning meetings to get Gills Club started. And, you know, we started pretty locally there on the Cape, but every meeting we had, the ideas were just snowballing. And we kind of came up with our original kind of approach for the 2014 launch, which was featuring female shark researchers sending out the newsletter and then having the on Cape events. And again, just with the goal of, you know, giving these girls and and also older students and women a community of peers and introducing them to, you know, the incredible shark researchers that are out there and are around the world, but don't always make it into programs like Shark Week, for example. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of support right from the beginning, which was great. I remember emailing like just my friends in the field, like, Hey, would you want to be featured? We're starting this new thing. And then they would say, Oh, well, you should, you know, contact so-and-so. And so just, yeah, we had a lot of support from the, the scientific community immediately with, you know, all our colleagues, male and female alike, uh, wanting to, to support our mission. So it's been an incredible journey. It definitely has you know, just changed in so many ways over the years. Um, Obviously, we've kind of become a little bit more uh, technical in terms of, you know, having the app versus the newsletter, so on and so forth. But, you know, and and our team has grown, you know, so now we work with you and Maddie, and I'm excited to see, you know, what we keep doing into the future. Um, I think when we first started it, we had a year long kind of like, let's just see what we can get done in a year. And, uh, and it's continued on and it's been really great. Absolutely. I think just from, I mean, I came up here in 2016 as a volunteer and just seeing it and being helping out in the monthly meetings and then seeing the one group here on the Cape expand to two groups here and then to other groups down at the North Carolina Aquarium or the aquarium out in Kentucky as well, the Newport Aquarium and just, and um, having them down at Moat as well. And just having this like broad band of you know, young girls that are so just intrigued with science and STEM and shark science and being able to have those role models like yourself or one of the, gosh, how many women are on the Gills Club science yeah. team now? Over a hundred <laughs> at this point, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. pretty wonderful how many have been willing to share their stories and photos and journeys. And- so as you were saying, you know, you were meeting these young girls who were inspired by sharks. So obviously you had an inspiration to go into sharks at one point in life. So like, what is your story? Cause I know there's a particular photo that I know of you <laughs> that I know right. this is an audio podcast. We'll put it on our social media for everyone to see then what we are talking about. But I know there is an f- interesting story around that and how that sparked your interest in sharks. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose I I'll start a little later and then go double back to the photo. Mm-hmm. I've always kind of knew that I was going to be on a biology or science track. I just always loved science, but I didn't really know what, you know, shape that was going to take. I have very distinct memory of, of being, you know, in like third grade or something and reading a book about volcanoes and being so excited about what I was reading that I wanted to like write up a synopsis and share it with my parents, which is like... (laughs) I was like little scientist Heather, right? I just was so excited about the content and immediately wanted to share it with others. So that was always there, but I always thought kind of through high school and everything that I would be pre-med or vet or something like that. 
so it wasn't, I didn't get on the shark track until I was actually like two years into undergrad. So it was a little bit later for me, but what got me there was that all those years growing up, I was really afraid of sharks, which I know I'm not alone in that. And it totally sounds a little cliche, but it was like my fear of sharks is what brought me to this point. And essentially it was just, you know, I'm, I'm a reader. My mom's a librarian. I grew up in libraries. And so I would go and get books about shark attacks and (laughs) interactions and, you know, how do, what are the shark interaction statistics? And, you know, essentially with the idea of if I want to go swimming in the ocean, what's the best time to do it so that I don't interact (laughs) with the shark. So, um, but in so doing, I started learning about how incredible sharks are and they're actually specific, you know, adaptations for hunting and swimming, so on and so forth. So I believe I'm not entirely sure, obviously, but I feel like that kind of innate fear of sharks that I had most likely maybe was connected to (laughs) the photo that you're referring to, um, which is uh, essentially me as a three-year-old in Montauk, New York. I grew up in the New York area and my dad uh, was a freelance photographer and my parents heard about this huge shark that had been captured off of Montauk, New York, and was coming into the docks there captured by the, you know, famous captain Frank Mundus, who Quint is modeled after in mm-hmm. Jaws. And so they brought my brother and I um, out to Montauk to see this shark. And, you know, my dad was brought his camera equipment. And so as a little three-year-old, I was able to walk right up to this it's like a 3,500 plus pound shark. It is still the world record fish ever caught on rod and reel. Um, So this huge shark and a white shark. And uh, so he got some photos of me standing there as a little three-year-old essentially touching my first shark. So I don't know if that kind of planted this little seed of curiosity or fear or whatever, but But yeah, all the years later, when I kind of started pursuing this field, I had vague memories of that, but I'd never actually seen those photos. And so my dad got out his old slides and developed the photo. I don't know if we used to have pictures and slides back in the day, Mm -hmm. but yeah. And and it was really incredible to kind of have these photos unearthed of my first shark being this huge world record white shark. And uh, it felt very full circle. So yeah. So once I kind of discovered that they were just you know, full of these incredible adaptations. I also started learning and reading about shark research, which I at that time learned was an actual career. And I just became hooked. I don't know. There was something about it that was so captivating, um, exciting. It definitely was outside of my comfort zone. I did not grow up fishing or on boats um, or anything. So my first internship, which was nearly 18 years ago with Greg Scomel and Martha's Vineyard, was a wonderful experience for me and also a little bit terrifying because <laughs> I was <laughs> going offshore and catching sharks for the first time. And, but I just, I just fell in love with it. So I was hooked after that for sure. Yeah. Uh, as you said, a full circle moment, this fear, or I don't want to say like, not maybe not even a fear, just like a trepidity. Is that a word? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, like, like going you know, going into that then and like finding all this information and then being able, you know, to like spark this interest. And, mm-hmm. you know, now like you have 
all of your research and, you know, you're into your PhD. I said, well, well, after your PhD that I should say <laughs> as well. And just being able then to like, to learn so much more about sharks. I find it interesting that you were saying that you have always wanted to go into like the vet side of mm-hmm. things. And I think like with what your research is, it, it does kind of tie in a little bit to what that original, you know, aspiration of going into the vet world as well. So if you want to kind of get into what your past research was and um, like those findings and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, certainly with the interest in vets, there was an interest in animals there and in the internal kind of functioning of animals, which is um, essentially what I study about sharks. Um, I've done some work, you know, tagging and tracking them but I, I mainly focus on uh, essentially how their bodies are put together and how they function. So that kind of falls under the broad umbrella of physiology. So studying you know, tissues, uh, molecules, enzymes, biochemical pathways, metabolism, all of that plus much more falls under the heading of physiology. So just how, how the body is kind of supporting day-to-day functionality. Uh, And that was pretty much my first avenue into shark research when I started doing my own independent research for my master's at University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. And I was studying shark heart physiology. And so that was kind of my first passion with sharks. Certainly, I definitely wanted to get on the water and see the animals and all of Mm -hmm. that. Still do love that. But yeah, understanding how they do what they do, how they're adapted is pretty incredible. And you know, with all of them, you know, hundreds of millions of years of evolution that they've experienced, there's such incredible diversity within the group in terms of their form, function, and physiology. So it's, it's ripe for a lot of um, exciting investigation. But while I was doing my master's, you know, and looking forward to the PhD, I also became kind of excited by the idea and had some really cool opportunities to kind of get into studying physiology, but for conservation and management. So using the tools of physiology, and that's also when I started doing what's referred to as molecular biology. So studying their molecules specifically like DNA and genes and DNA sequences. That's, that's around that time in my PhD is when I kind of expanded my toolkit, so to speak, from <laughs> physiology to also include molecular biology and use that for conservation challenges. So that Mm -hmm. kind of brings me to what most of my career has mostly been focused around, which is stress physiology of sharks when they experience certain stressors and stress physiology can be investigated, you know, in environmental sense, so on and so forth. But most of my research has focused on fishing and capture related mortality and stress physiology. So just to get an idea of which species are perhaps more vulnerable on different types of fishing gear. You know, what I, what I learned from, you know, the literature and from my mentors um, and what we've seen play out in many studies since is that not every shark behaves the same. And some sharks are much more vulnerable to capture than other species. And so there's been a big push to try to understand those species specific Uh, mortality rates in response to different types of gear, as well as potentially what's causing that mortality. So that's where the physiology comes in is trying to understand what happens to a shark when it's captured on a line, it cannot get away, 
it's thrashing about, it can't respire the way it normally would. It's performing a lot of muscle contraction, which creates a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, metabolic byproduct. And how does that impact their ability to recover essentially? So the recovery would come essentially after release. So a lot of management mm-hmm. strategies is to enforce this idea that if you're not allowed to keep a certain species, then you release it with the idea that it is going back to its population, contributing to population growth. Um, And so it's recorded as an alive individual, but what we're seeing is that they may die hours or days after release. And that is linked to the the stress that they are experiencing. So a lot of my research has focused in that realm and using different techniques and tools to try to look at different levels of that stress response. Mm -hmm. And I think with this one, um, it's very immersive (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Um, for, for one way, but then two, like, you know, you're not just doing this on one species, which I think would keep things really interesting as, as well. You're able to work with multiple different species and be able to learn about them and how they stress and how they, I guess Mm -hmm. you could say Mm de-stress. Yeah. Yeah as well. So since you're assuming that they are, then, you know, the, they are recovering that afterwards, is there anything that you can do to see that after, as long as I guess it's putting a tag in it and seeing where they're going? Like, does that make sense with that? Yeah. To determine recovery, essentially what happens after. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of the, a really nice way to approach these studies is to have the physiology side. So you take, you capture a shark, you take its blood, Mm-hmm. So you kind of see what the disruptions are happening within the, the body and the cells and the tissues. And then you have that individual. And if you have tags, uh, you can tag the individual and then release them. And so different types of tags are used in these studies, but essentially they allow us to determine if that shark goes on to keep swimming mm-hmm. for a number of days afterwards, or if a mortality event happens after release. So um, in the early days of these studies, um, scientists would work with smaller species and capture them and then kind of put them into like a little cage holding pen kind of, and Mm -hmm. like put them back into the water and then come back the next day and see how they were doing in that holding pen. But now that we have the electronic tags, we can get specifically depth information And that helps us determine uh, whether or not they recover or not. So essentially sharks bodies are negatively buoyant. And so for um, if we can tag them and monitor their swimming profile um, and what they're doing up and down in the water column after release, if they experience a mortality, then they, if they're in shallower water, then they will, you know, sink and sit at the same depth for a long period of time. If they're in deeper water, then we'll just see this continuous kind of deep dive profile that's a straight shot down to, Mm -hmm. you know, basically to the limits of the tag at that depth of the water. So depending on the type of tag, we'll visually inspect that information and and determine if mortality has happened. And so then we kind of get to pair up the stress profile of that fish and we know how it did after recovery, and then try to link certain parameters to what might be associated with mortality, or, you know, the end goal is kind of trying to figure out what's causing mortality. How incredible that like, 
technology is able to have us learn about all this, yes, <laughs> be able to yes. answer these questions. Yes, it, it is incredible. And it's, and it's really um, wonderful in terms of being able to use these studies and for the first time determine species specific mortality rates or specifically post-release mortality. That's what we call it for specific species and specific gear types, um, which has been you know, kind of estimated in the past in terms of fisheries management plans. But now we can give them that actual data, you know, for each species. And, um, and, you know, we, we do that, we send our papers and, and data um, to management groups at NOAA for their consideration while they're working with species of concern. So the tags have really uh, helped to fill in a lot of data gaps for sure. Going back to then drawing blood and then analyzing it. So mm-hmm. is it very much the same process? Like when we get our blood drawn and then it goes through that same process? Is it the same? Is it different? (laughs) It's similar. It's similar. Yeah. I guess I'll start with just getting the blood sample first. So, you know, just like humans, we essentially know good locations on a shark to try to get our blood sample. And usually this is, you know, in the field training, it's, it's Mm -hmm. pretty hard to describe it to someone and have them go and be successful doing a blood draw. And it does take a lot of practice. But essentially the location that we typically target is in the tail region or the caudal region. Um, And that basically runs um, right underneath their vertebra that runs down the length of the shark. So there's a little arch in there that's made out of cartilage and it's called a hemal arch. And that has kind of the main arterial and venous system that runs down the length of the fish. So that hemal arch connected to the vertebra kind of gets closest to kind of the skin side of the shark right at that tail region. So basically we try to target, we go up on the ventral side or the underside of the shark, kind of the belly side. And essentially you're inserting your needle into that little cartilage arch and then getting your blood draw. So that's, it's called a caudal puncture. There's um, other locations that you can go to on, you know, that are used, I would say, a little bit more commonly in in like aquariums and and vets um, will use different approaches for getting their samples. So different uh, blood sinuses within different locations of the body. But yeah, the caudal puncture is is the most commonly used. There is a specific group of fish, since we're on the topic of getting the blood sample. (laughs) This is one of my favorite things is there's um, our high performance sharks or family lamnidae, which is the white shark, the makos, the poor beagle and the salmon shark. They have very unique um, morphology, anatomy and physiology that supports a very quick and active feeding behavior and swimming behavior. So we call them high performance. And so their blood vessels are actually laid out a little differently than most Mm -hmm. other sharks. And so with that group, you can actually do a lateral blood draw along the side of of the flank of the fish. So it it is interesting to kind of consider the species of the fish that you're blood sampling and different considerations. Some species have like a, a thicker hemal arch. So it's a little harder to puncture through. Mm -hmm. Um, so if I go, if I know I'm going to sample a black tip, I know I'm going to have a little bit more resistance to get that blood hammerheads have like an extra extension of the hemal arch. It's a cartilage piece that kind of runs down. So I know I might be like hitting that on the way, trying to get into the hemal arch. So kind of studying the, 
tail morphology of different species is really interesting to try to help you get a quicker blood sample because that's the mm-hmm. whole thing. You want to get the blood, but you also want to get it quick. But yeah. anyway, I digress. That's an area that I'm really excited about and, and like to study. But um, but once you get your blood, yeah, essentially you're just looking for indicators that are uh, that we expect would fluctuate with a stress response. So like humans, you know, you would get basically an a profile created of a blood sample for certain indicators of health or disease. You look at, you know, glucose, lactate, something called hematocrit, which is basically the amount of red blood cells you have in your, in your blood. Uh, Look at ion levels like potassium chloride. So we look at similar things within the sharks. All of those are indicators of uh, essentially the cascade of changes that we expect to happen as a stress response. These days we use, a, actually there's some overlap in the tools that we use, mm-hmm. the equipment that we use for determining those parameters. The challenge is that a lot of those tools have been developed for humans or mammals. And so we have to be careful, but uh, yeah, it's actually a pretty similar process. It's just a, a different body and kind of different levels that we look at as the indication of stress. I actually didn't know that the layout was different between, you know, like the different species of shark. I just thought it was like all really in the same place there. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a fun one to kind of investigate a little bit and it definitely helps you in the moment when you're blood sampling. Mm -hmm. So then obviously you're working with a wild animal (laughs) when you are, you know, taking the, these blood samples from sharks, it's different, you know, us humans know, you know, to sit down, stay still, (laughs) yeah, be able to do that. So having that, I mean, that must be a challenge, you know, being able, you know, to make sure, you know, you're keeping yourself safe, but as well, you know, as that animal is safe too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the number one uh, rule is, is safety for sure. And that's something that, you know, any group, you know, that I'm working with, we, we, you have to talk through your plan before you're actually doing the field work, you know, who's doing what, who's standing where, you know, if you're going to put a hose in the shark's mouth while it's out of the water, where's that hose, you know, um, oftentimes um, in many projects that I've worked in, you know, you put a towel over the head to keep them calm. Where's the towel? Who's doing that? So it's going to go much smoother if everyone kind of has an idea of what they're supposed to be doing in the moment. And safety is number one. And, you know, you, you try to sell, set yourself up for success in terms of, you know, do you start with the shark on its side, which is easier for a blood draw, but then if you're tagging it at the same time, do you need to roll it over? Which are you starting with first? And certainly if the shark, if it's, you know, like I said, I think most of us who take blood samples, we would agree that it's, you know, a lot of practice and training, but there's a really big percentage that's also luck. So sometimes you can, I mean, I've taken blood from hundreds of sharks and, and sometimes it's just not happening, you know? So if it gets to be too long, you got to call it and you got to let the animal off the boat. So, so just being um, considerate and smart about that is really important, but you know, at the same time, if you can like something like a, if you were working with a lambda shark, you know, where you could get a blood sample from lateral vessels, then you can be getting blood and tagging at the same time, you know, Mm -hmm. or other scientists will, um, if they're working with a flexible shark, they'll bend the tail in a certain way. So you can Mm -hmm. get your blood sample and tagging at the same time. So it just depends on your boat and your setup and your species, but yeah, but I co-teach a shark field course with um, another gills club scientist, Maggie Winchester in the summer. And 
we really heavily impress upon the students that we're going to talk through everything before it happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're not going into this without a plan for our safety and the shark's safety. I think it's important to know too, one, the safety, but two, I think there is maybe I shouldn't say um, it's not expected, but maybe just people just don't know that communication is so key (laughs) within a research team or a science team. You know, when I'm in schools doing our shark tagging exercise that we do I tell them you know like you and you're in your team like someone has to be taking the notes who remembers the measurement that you just took what tag Mm -hmm. did we just put out and I think you know just having that little like exercise just like puts that into that perception and even like with you explaining it like all the different roles that happen on a boat and you know there's you listed 10 different roles but maybe there's only three to four people on the boat Mm -hmm. (laughs) as well Absolutely. That is, it's communication is so critically important, again, for safety first, but then also success of your project. Mm -hmm. Like you say, if you, you can go out into the field and and do all the work, but if you're not bringing back proper data sheets, then there's really not much point to what you're doing. So yeah, I always share that with my students as well as, you know, having someone who takes good data and you might be disappointed maybe that for this particular shark, you're on data sheet instead of handling the shark. But I often put people I trust most on data sheets and, and Mm -hmm. um, because it really is critically important for the project once you get back on land and yeah, in the moment when you have a shark, cause it's a shark and usually it's a little bit of an organized chaos situation and unexpected things will happen. So try to talk through alternate ideas if you can beforehand, but ultimately you're going to have to think on the fly in some situations and uh, you have to communicate loudly and clearly. And <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it is really critically important. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned um, your students that you teach a class with Maggie when Chester. So there's a few of our Gills Club scientists that are in the, the teaching realm. Um, so Dr. Mm-hmm. Christine Stump, who you collaborate with a lot through Field Lab Consulting, or yes. M- Melissa Gonzalez de Acevedo as well. She's a middle school teacher. So like, how did, then did you, because obviously you're still doing science, but then mm-hmm. you're also teaching. Was that something that you always were interested in? Or was it something that naturally came as you were going through the field? Yeah, I would say it was more of a naturally natural unfolding. I was always like really moving towards the research. I, it wasn't that I didn't want to teach. I just was not really thinking about it when I first got started. I just kind of had this one track mind, but you know, for anyone who is kind of moving into a research realm, usually at some point you're going to have the opportunity to do some teaching. Maybe it's linked to your funding. So I first began teaching during my master's, I was teaching as a TA because essentially that was how they funded my master's at my institute. So I had financial support, but it came with, you know, the TA teaching. And so I I started getting into teaching then and, and I really did enjoy it. I was fortunate that I was teaching anatomy and physiology and it was human-based anatomy and physiology in terms of like all the bones of the human body. I had a lot to learn there, but I already had a natural (laughs) love for the physiology side of things. So um, what what I kind of recognized early on with the teaching is not only is it, you know, the rewards that you would expect from teaching, the rapport with students, sharing really cool science with them, learning from them, from their own experiences and backgrounds, but it, it requires, you know, 
for me anyway, this is my approach to teaching when you're in a lab or something like that needs to be your focus, you know? Mm -hmm. And so anything else that's going on in your life, stressors or concerns or anything like that, it's like taking a three hour break from, oh, am I going to graduate on time? Oh, do I have funding for next year? You know, you have to be present with your students. And so it actually was like a really nice, almost calming effect being in the classroom with the students. And so also getting your foot in the door with teaching. Um, I always say to people, if you have the opportunity to teach a course, go for it, because it also can be something that you kind of need to pull out of your back pocket at some point in terms of just having a job. So like my last year of my PhD, you know, I didn't, you know, the grant that was funding my PhD was done. I had a scholarship that was done. And so to, to get through that last, you know, year, I started teaching as an adjunct professor at a local community college. And so it was something that I already had done. I felt confident walking into a classroom and yes, it made life a little bit more chaotic, but, um, but, but it was a, a job that um, was uh, meaningful and built my skill set, And I was able to uh, mm -hmm. turn to that in that kind of gap between the PhD and the postdoc. And I would say my love of teaching was revamped when we first started teaching the uh, shark biology and conservation course at uh, Shoals first year, I think was in 2018. And that is such a fun class and just kind of sparked my, my love of teaching again. And so, yeah, so that's kind of, you know, at that point uh, became the type of position that I was looking to uh, pursue. So I'm a full-time assistant professor down here in Florida. Funny, it's I'm in the biotechnology program at our school and I use tools of biotechnology in my own research, like the molecular methods. But, you know, it, I never saw myself teaching in a biotechnology mm -hmm. program, you know, but my PhD is technically in my degree is biomedical engineering and biotechnology. And so that was something that when I was getting my PhD, it was kind of like, oh, is this really a for my future? But it was kind of the best program for me to be in at the time, even though I was doing shark research. And now I'm in this biotechnology program. So kind of another full circle moment where pulling yeah. on these past experiences and skills has culminated in, in where I am now. Mm -hmm. it, it all ties together at one point. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Everyone's just on their own journey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's really a theme that we hear from a lot of scientists, you know, like they all have this, their own path and their own journey and somehow it connects to one another, but I did want to shout out um, your class that you do at Shoals mm. because that is through, um, that's a Gills Club scholarship program for us as well. Yeah. And we do, there is a scholarship to have a one, one student come up to do that course this year. It is filled already, but keep mm. on the lookout for next year. I think that comes out usually around January, February, the applications go live for that. So yeah. for next year, mark that in for 2023. Um, if you are a college student and you're interested in shark biology, that that is a, um, a really great course to come up to New Hampshire and take. Yes, absolutely. We've had some, all of our Guilds Club scholars have been really great in that course and really fun to work with. And it's been cool to see what they've done since. So, mm -hmm. but to round out our interview today, Heather, I would love to hear advice that you maybe would have given to your younger self coming up in this field. Yeah, absolutely. One, one regret I do have <laughs> looking like back, looking back to uh, graduate school is I was so shark focused. I took all the classes that I 
thought related to the research that I was going to be doing. He also advanced cells, molecular biology, shark tagging, fisheries, so on and so forth. And all of that was really great and served me well. But I never took like a marine mammals class or a marine invertebrates class. Um, it wasn't required. And I was just so kind of like, sharks are my thing that I didn't think that, you know, that I needed to, or, you know, there wasn't that inherent interest or whatever. And, and looking back, I really wish that I had, because obviously the ocean is composed of not just sharks. Mm -hmm. And um, there's so many interesting animals, you know, to learn about. And, and I do, of course, try to do my own education now. But I wish that I'd taken the opportunity at that time to take courses that maybe were not directly related to the future that I was looking at, just to be a little bit more well-rounded in terms of that mm -hmm. knowledge. And, and, and just cause it's really cool. I mean, marine mammal physiology is amazing. I'm sure I would have loved it. I just, uh, you know, I was just kind of on that one track mind. So mm -hmm. I, it's something that I've thought about in the last few years. And I'm like, I wonder if there's a course I could find to take one summer about marine yeah. mammals, um, just to keep learning and, and growing. So um, yes, so advice to my younger self and to anyone who may be listening is um, it's definitely good and it may serve you well to take courses that maybe are not in your direct, um, kind of directly what you're aiming towards. And, and another thing I would say, and I know that I'm echoing this from other scientists who I've listened to on the podcast is definitely just be, um, you know, open-minded as mm -hmm. you are moving along your career path in terms of work opportunities. You know, I certainly got into this field initially because it was sharks and field work and so cool and, you know, still very cool and important. And I, I certainly never saw myself moving in a direction of, you know, molecular science. You know, mm -hmm. I was very insecure about my molecular science background and training when I first started doing that in, in, as a PhD student, you know, it was, it was pretty intimidating. Same thing with blood sampling. Like I said, my initial master's project was looking at um, heart physiology and, and I was kind of not that interested in the blood sampling initially. And now it's become so exciting to me. It's a huge part mm -hmm. of my career. It's opened, really opened the doors for me for many different research opportunities where I've been invited for multiple projects just because I know how to get blood and I know what to yeah. do with it afterwards. And I have a little kind of field ready kit, ready to go into any remote environment. I've spun blood at bars in the Galapagos just because they had <laughs> an electrical plug. So it's like, you know, my initial hesitation you know, I'm so glad that I, that I still moved forward into something mm -hmm. that maybe I didn't think was going to be exactly what I was looking for, or maybe was a little bit scary or an unknown. And I know other scientists have said this, but try something. If you don't like it, you know, but it could kind of change your future trajectory and bring you in a, in a direction that um, is unexpected. So I definitely would tell myself, not to worry so much about that and would encourage others to just keep trying things, especially in graduate school or as an undergrad, because that's, that's the mm -hmm. time you're going to have kind of the most financial support and flexibility and time to explore things. Uh, once you get out of graduate school, uh, things change a little bit and, uh, and you just don't have that same kind of flexibility. Mm -hmm. So, no. And I think it's echoed for the reason that it's important to know, and it's really great advice to give. I mean, for you say, like, especially for your undergrad to get out and try new things, that was, that was me in my mm -hmm. 
undergrad. I walked into a professor's office. I didn't have a classroom yet, but I heard talks around the marine science department that he needed help doing some light level monitoring for sea turtle nests mm. during during the summer. So I was like, I'm gonna be around. I'll help you cool. out. I walked in and he's like, sure. And I got an internship that summer because yeah, he need he needed the help. So you just never know <laughs> right. what's available unless like you go around and ask around the worst they're gonna say is no, we don't need help. But they might say, hey, I know the person right next door might need help this summer or this exactly. fall or wherever you are. So now I think exactly. it's great advice to give. Yeah. And everything you learn in that kind of research setting, it doesn't matter if that's not specifically what you're moving towards. You're still learning those skills that are transferable, you know, how to be a good scientist, how to be a good collaborator, how to, you know, if you're working in lab, how to clean glassware, you know, what are the expectations for using different types of water? You can't use the same water for every procedure, you Mm -hmm. know, so, so you learn that in one lab and then you know it when you go into another lab. So it's, it's all transferable and will help you on the way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Heather, for coming on today. This was very lovely to hear about your background, your advice, everything else in between. (laughs) I'm so glad. Well, thank you so much for having me. I was really looking forward to it this week. And again, thank you for all the work you're doing with the podcast, because it's really fun to hear from you and the other scientists and, and, um, you know, learn new things. Every, every time you put out a new episode, I'm learning new things too. So great work with it. Yeah. Thank Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe and review. And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye everyone.